Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. Welcome to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, Director of Content and Resources, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you today a message that John gave recently at a Minute the Outpost gathering, and it's about the popular but damaging assumptions that we so often make about the Christian life and about how God operates. So here's John. When I was asking Jesus about what tonight was about, he wanted me to address assumptions that we're making about how God operates, what he's doing, assumptions about life and about the Christian life and that sort of thing that are, that are frankly pretty popular, pretty easy, you know, familiar assumptions, easy to embrace, that actually, actually do a lot of damage to your life and your heart and your life with God, do a lot of damage to your faith and your confidence. So like the disciples who were sitting in the upper room going, what? Really? Like, I don't get this. Because they had one set of assumptions and God was operating from a different set altogether. We're going to try and chase some of that clarity, freedom, life. The offer being that the more that you can identify assumptions that you're making about life or people or God, man, it's a huge relief for God to kind of put his finger on something and you go, wow, I didn't even realize I was assuming that. And then to get free from it or get the truth into it or have it just, mm, yeah, kind of, but have him dial you a little bit more in. I mean, it's just, it's life. It's good. It's a relief. It takes enormous amounts of confusion away and pressure and all kinds of things. So I'm going to start with a couple of what I think are going to be fairly clear examples to give you an idea of what I mean by assumptions and their power. And then we'll push into some that might not be uh, quite as obvious to us because we're making them. So the first one is, that was then, this is now. This is a really widely held assumption, actually, in Christianity, that the stories in the Bible are exceptions. They are remarkable, unique, powerful, holy, true, inspiring accounts of how God has worked in the lives of men for thousands of years. But the assumption that gets in was, and you don't really get that. These are the Bible guys, right? I mean, that was Elijah, for heaven's sakes. You know, that was Peter. That was Paul. It's a really, really, really common assumption, actually, among Christians is, yeah, the Bible is true and good and powerful, but that was then, and this is now. And it is a devastating assumption. It's devastating because it robs you of all of the wonderful things that God wants to do in your life now. It robs you, actually, of the Bible. Because as soon as you say, this is a book of exceptions, not examples, (laughs) it's like, 
it's like he handed you the owner's manual, you know, to a Chevy, but you drive a Ford. Like, it's really inspiring, and it kind of, you know, shows you how amazing and powerful God is and gives you some moral precepts to live by. But that was then, and this is now, and you don't really get this. Devastating. Devastating assumption. Very widely held. Totally unbiblical. The scriptures say themselves that these things are written so that you might experience them also. In fact, that's how John begins his first epistle. First John, in his letter, old saint, writing to the church, writing to us. In First John, he says, here's why we want to tell you these things. Because we actually experienced Jesus Christ. And we want you to. We want you to as well. We want you to experience Jesus just like we did. That's the assumption that's actually governing these stories. The assumption governing the stories is that he's the same God, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever, right? It's same world, same, same actions. Like, no, no, that's all available to you. All that's available to you. And if you hold this assumption, it's so damaging because it robs you of a genuine life with God and leaves you with moral principles. It robs you of life in the kingdom now, like learning to live in the kingdom of God now. And it also robs you of the Bible. But for the most part, y'all aren't making that assumption. I mean, if you, if you like us and you hang around Ransom Heart a little while, it would be hard to hold on to that assumption and kind of groove with what we're saying and doing. So that's just an example of it's really popular out there, really devastating. The consequences of that assumption are just crushing on the Christian life really robs you of intimacy with Jesus, that you can't know Jesus like the disciples did. Go, nonsense. He's alive. Same guy. Jesus is exactly the same guy. He's still alive, right? Still speaks, still acts, still moves, still loves his people, still heals the brokenhearted, sets the captive free. That's, you know, it's all available. I think another example um, that's going to sound a little funny when I name it, but actually is pretty popular as well is that worship equals singing. Now hang with me for a second. Hang with me. Because when people say, yeah, we got together and worshiped, what do you assume they were doing? Singing, right? And you say, oh, we had a wonderful worship service. And what do you assume went down there? They were singing, right? And go, why don't we get together tonight and worship God? When somebody says to you, come on over to our house and we're just going to worship God tonight, what do you assume is going to take place? Somebody's going to turn some music on or play some music, and right? That's, I mean, for the most part, it's like I'm using a couple, I hope, of very clear examples to begin with. But this is popular. It's a, but worship is so much more than that. And that's actually a damaging assumption to hold that worship is pretty much confined to or even best expressed by the act of what we'll do tonight. Music guiding us into his presence to tell him we love him, right? And that's a really great thing, by the way. Like, I totally believe in that. To get myself ready for tonight in my car all the way over here, I had a CD cranked. 
just helping dial my heart, my mind, my spirit, my attitude, my motives, and all that into God. That's all, like, that's really great stuff, okay? But the thing is this. It's fascinating that when the Magi come in Matthew 2, the Magi come from the east to visit Christ at his birth. This is what it said. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, do you assume that, oh, they're going (laughs) to... Hey, everybody, let's just gather around and... Right? Here's the baby Jesus, and we love you, Lord, and we lift our voice. Do you see that? Go, oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. But they said they came to worship him. And then it says later in the passage, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. So clearly, unless they were singing, right, which the passage doesn't indicate, there's an act of worship that actually isn't musical, right? And even more, I think, clear in Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God, that doesn't sound musical to me. Right? That's a different thing. Whatever it is he's describing there, this act of consecration, sanctification, you know, presenting holy bodies to him. Do you see that? And part of why that's a damaging, why that's a damaging thing is, one, I think it diminishes the reality of what's going on when we are singing because worship is this. Worship is whatever you give your heart to in hope of a return of life, right? And people worship all kinds of things. We worship all kinds of things. See, part of the problem of kind of relegating, oh yeah, I went to worship service. Oh yeah, we're going to worship tonight. Oh yeah, it was a really great, really great worship time. Is it actually kind of numbs us to the reality of, oh, you're worshiping all the time. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of the inclinations of your heart? Worship is what you give your heart over to in hopes that it's going to bring you life, right? It's, it's adoration. It's where you go for security, and it's where you go for significance. We worship a lot of things. People worship their families. Just look at their reaction when they're asked to give them up. People worship their health. Just look at their reaction when they're asked to give it up. You see what I'm saying? So that's just another helpful one. Singing only keeps us from realizing how much we actually do worship. And the essential act of worship is making something your treasure. Like in a good way. I mean, that's a good act. You're designed to do that. But God just says, make me your treasure. Do you see that? So this is powerful, early, I think, hopefully clear examples. Now let me push into some that will hopefully begin to get into maybe areas of unspoken, huh, yeah, wow, I didn't realize I was making that. Here's a fairly popular one. This is a fairly popular one, particularly in the world that we would call kind of the larger ransomed heart orbit because of the kind of things we teach and because of the kind of people we attract. 
And the assumption is this, that miracles are the sign that God is moving. Miracles are the real action. Like, come on. Like, it's the really cool stuff. Really? We think that. We believe that. Right? Because just notice your reaction. People coming back from a retreat, right? Or coming back from a conference. Or they went to, you know, a famous church. Or went to hear a famous speaker. And they come back, right? And they could tell you one of two things. They could say, oh, you won't believe what happened. Like, people got physically healed there. Like there was this gal and she was in this wheelchair and she stood up like it was the real deal. Just notice your reaction to that versus there was incredibly profound repentance. Come on, we think the really cool stuff is the miracles, right? The, right? Or, or people are just coming back from, from an evening together a worship night, and they're saying, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what happened. Like, like we got swept over by laughter, and everybody was laughing, and we just couldn't stop laughing. And then there was kind of like this, whoa, there was like this tingling sensation in the room, and man, a number of people had like really powerful words for one another, right? Your reaction to that versus your reaction to, you know what? It was an incredible experience of love. You kind of go, Oh, wow. Cool. Awesome. That's great. Right? I mean, seriously, like this really sneaks in there. Okay? Another expression of it would be to speak in tongues means that you really now have the Holy Spirit. Really. Right? And and people kind of saying, hey, guess what? You know, I got my prayer language which is a very cool thing and totally biblical, totally biblical. But the deal is the implication being they've crossed some threshold into the real deal, right? right? The miracles, the prophetic words. The... Listen, I believe in all that stuff. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I think you have to stretch credulity, reason, and theology to the breaking point to try and talk about the cessation of the gifts. It's just madness. Right? It's the Bible's a book of exceptions, not examples again. It's that whole thing. Okay, however, however, first off, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, okay? To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, and to another, the message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing. You just kind of pause and go, Wisdom, healing, <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, we do this, okay? But Paul's going, no, 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 no. Stay with me here, okay? He says, to another, miraculous powers, to another, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. And in the church, God's appointed apostles, prophets, teachers, then Workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, 
those with gifts of administration and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? He's clearly saying no. No. That's not how the gifts are distributed. So this isn't like now you're in the secret club. Now you've crossed the threshold into the really cool realm. Right? But I'm telling you, this is a pretty popular assumption. You know, you're listening to a kind of a missionary's reports, right? Coming back from the field and you want to hear about like the raising of the dead, you know, versus now she really turned in her heart toward Jesus. Oh, you know, you kind of go, well, great. No, that's great. That's, that's great. That's really cool. It's not as cool as some of the other stories I've heard, but right on, go for you, you know, kind of thingy, hang in there. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a terrible assumption. This is really bad. Do you want me to tell you the damage of this? Because Paul ends 1 Corinthians 12, he ends the passage by saying, but let me show you the most excellent way. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, which is what? Love. Love is greater than people being raised from the dead. Love is greater than healing someone of cancer. Clearly. Clearly, love is the most excellent, right? Paul says, look, I can have faith to move all mountains, right? You all remember this. I can do all this stuff, right? I can know all mysteries and prophesy and bring words of knowledge to people. I can work miracles. He says, without love, it's nothing. It's literally nothing. I mean, that doesn't jive with our assumptions. Like, really, we kind of think that's the cool stuff. And you kind of go, love? That's like so ordinary. Oh, gosh. I think you probably know by now that love is extraordinary and that people who actually genuinely live a life of love are walking miracles. (laughs) They just are. People who love well are the most extraordinary human beings you will ever meet. They just are. That's partly why this is a damaging assumption, one, it's damaging because we'll chase the wrong thing. Now look, I think God heals people. I think God gives words of knowledge. I think he still gives prophetic words. I think all that stuff is still operating, but you're not supposed to chase it. You're supposed to chase love. You're supposed to chase God, right? The reason why this one's damaging is we'll chase the wrong thing. But here's another one. The reason that this assumption is damaging is that you're going to esteem the wrong people. You're going to esteem the wrong people, right? I mean, the really cool people in the room are the people that are like super gifted, right? And can come up to you and go, hey, Jesus has a, has a word for you. And, kind of thing. you go, and it's true and it's huge and it, you're grateful for that versus, you know, Mary who's just kind of over in the corner just loving people, Right? I mean, you're going to end up esteeming the wrong ministries, the wrong movements, if you get this a little bit out of whack here, right? Our value systems kind of change from, you know, wisdom. Did you hear in there? Gifts of administration, gifts of miraculous power. And you kind of go, administration? Oh, hey, great, great. That's awesome. And we sure appreciate it. 
You know, but look at this thing over here. This is so cool, right? You're going to esteem the wrong people. Okay, that's why this is a damaging one. It's also damaging because if you don't have a certain set of gifts that are being held up as the really cool ones, you feel less. You feel less spiritual, less dialed into God, less effective in the kingdom, right? It's damaging. Not everybody gets to do this and not everybody gets to do that, right? Okay, you got the picture. Oh, man, here's another one. This is a Lulu. Everything that happens to me is the will of God. This is really big, actually. It's an unspoken assumption, but you'll hear it come out in the way people talk about events and things. But it's the idea that everything that happens to you is the will of God. This is a devastating assumption to hold. It is unbiblical, and this will absolutely destroy your relationship with Jesus. Let me explain why. I was on our radio interview, and we were talking about the life of Jesus, and it was a really great show. It was an hour-long show, and so we had a lot of chance to get into who's Jesus, what is he like, and it was great. And then it was a call-in. One of the first callers in was a woman, and she said, I have a really hard time believing what you're saying about Jesus, that he's that good and that loving and that kind and that true. She says, because I was sexually abused in the church. Okay? And, oh, if I could have... If I could have leapt through the radio waves and gone into her room and spent hours with her and talked her through the deep assumption there, that was not God's will, sweetheart. That had nothing to do with Jesus. You have an enemy. He hates your guts, right? He works in churches and he works in families. He works in holy places to do unholy things. But that doesn't mean that was God or his will for your life. That's madness to hold that. Let me make this very clear. In the book of James, in chapter 1, James says, God never causes anyone to sin. I think you can probably track with that much, right? You can go, that makes sense, you know. Okay, so right, God, God does not cause people to sin. Okay, James says, when tempted, No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We go, whoa, 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 time out then. Hang on. God never tempts anyone, but people are tempted all the time. So things are taking place that are not caused by God. Right? And then James goes on to say, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin to death. God does not cause people to sin. Can we agree on that? Right? But you understand that people sin every day. And those sins sometimes have devastating consequences. All kinds of things take place on the earth that are not the will of God. Let me try it again. Stay with me on this because, I mean, this is, people raised in certain Bible camps are going to have a really hard time with this one. When Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, your name is holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is done in heaven. Okay, how is God's will done in heaven? Yeah, perfectly, beautifully, seamlessly, joyfully, unanimously, right? Everybody's on the same page there, okay? But why would Jesus have us pray that the will of God is done on earth if the will of God is always done on earth? That'd be a really stupid prayer, right? Think of it. It'd be like praying, I want you to pray that the sun comes up this morning. The Bible never tells you to pray that the sun comes up. Do you know why? Because that's given. You got that one. It's going to happen. It's a freebie. Don't worry about it. The sun is always going to come up every morning. Okay? You're never told to pray that the sun comes up. Okay? But why are you told to pray that the will of God is done on earth as it is done in heaven? Unless the will of God is not frequently done on earth as it is done in heaven. And you don't need to, like, five minutes of the news will show you that. Right? Rape. Criminal assault. Lies, deceit, human lives, devastation, slavery, human trafficking, all that stuff, right? That's not the will of God. But if you hold this for your personal life, you know, I can't wait to get over this cold, one friend said to us. Uh, No, here's what she said. She said, "I, I sure hope I learn what God has for me in this cold so I can get over it. I'm like, wait, you think God made you sick? Okay, so there are these things in the world called germs. And they're just out there. Okay, and they just kind of work, right? There's all kinds of things that happen in the world. that That's not like his special preordained will for you that you are raped by your father from the ages of 4 to 13. Not the will of God. I can guarantee it. I promise you. See, but do you know how damaging this is if you hold on to this? For one thing, this makes for an extraordinarily passive Christianity. Because why pray about anything? Why resist anything? Why do anything about anything? This is an utterly fatalistic Christianity. Well, that must have been the will of God. All right? Wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. The fruit, you shall know them by their fruits. Cynicism, resignation, checked out, passivity, a totally powerless church. The other thing, though, is the devastation that this begins to do to your view of the heart of God. I mean, for that woman to hold the belief, God willed that I would be raped, sexually abused as a little girl. I mean, how do you hold on to the goodness of God? Like, this will destroy your faith if you hold on to this conviction. It's horrible. C.S. Lewis says that this conviction in particular, the danger of this, he said, is worshiping demons. And here's why. If you just blur everything into will of God, okay, then pretty soon you start saying some awfully evil things are connected to God. James says that's impossible, right? And then how do you distinguish the God you're worshiping at that point? How do you distinguish good from evil? Okay, massively damaging. Here's another one trying to get free of these assumptions where the disciples in the upper room were confused about the way God acts and moves and works in the world because of a lot of assumptions that kind of just get in. Here's another one. Prayer is primarily asking God to move on our behalf or on behalf of someone else. Prayer is primarily asking God to intervene. 
This is so popular. This is the basic assumption about prayer. Prayer is asking God to move or intervene on your behalf or someone else's. A friend of mine said just last week, I'm pounding on the doors of heaven until I get an answer. Now, part of that, I want to go right on, man, right on. Like, yes, you keep at it. Like, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Stay with those prayers. Part of that is really, really good. Part of it is a really horrible view of God. That God is waiting until you ask enough. He's waiting until you ask with enough faith or enough times or with enough sincerity or whatever. You pound, you fast, you whatever, you know. He's waiting. And when he finally says, okay, okay, all right, that was pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, now I'll act on your behalf. Any pagan father would do better by his son than that kind of action. Okay? This idea that prayer is primarily asking God for things. The problem with that, or with expressions like, prayer moves the hand of God. You go, really? God doesn't move until we get him to somehow, beg him to, convince him to, show him enough devotion. Like, that's madness. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whoa, 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 that doesn't sound like prayer is primarily asking to me. There's some shift here in kind of the whole spiritual arrangement of things. And then he goes on and repeats it two chapters later in Matthew 18. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, let me give you a really obvious example to help dismantle this assumption. Spiritual warfare. James 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It doesn't say, ask me to resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He says, no, you do it. You resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Okay? And then Acts chapter 16, you get an example of it. This is describing Paul's actions. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Remember what I said last time? It only takes one nut. They do far more damage than 50 atheists. One nut on the street corner yelling Jesus, right? One guy with all the, you know, he's got 5,000 bumper stickers all over his car, Jesus. Like, they do far more damage than Bertrand Russell and Stephen Hawking, Okay. So she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left. Now, he didn't ask God. Do you see the difference? He did it. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. He bound the thing. He commanded it to be gone. There was no kind of waiting and asking and hoping that the father would do it for him, right? 
Healing. Prayer is another really good example. Do you know why we're told to lay on hands? Why does healing prayer normally involve the laying on of hands? Because you are a vessel of the power of God. That's why the laying on of hands. Through your touch, the power of God comes into their body and brings the healing. You are a vessel of the power of God in that. And there's that wild story in Acts 20 where Paul is teaching in the upstairs room and it gets late into the night. Apparently he's just going long, 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 long teaching time. And the guy Eutychus, there was a young man, right, named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep, but he was seated in the window. He falls out of the third story window. He dies, right? He dies. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and raised him to life. He lays on it. He laid his body on the guy's body. He go, wow, that's just a wild story. Whatever you make of that, that's not, oh, Father, please raise Eutychus. They're doing it. They're getting it done. You see that? It's not primarily asking. Now, Pause. Let me say, of course, lots and lots of prayer is asking. You betcha. Absolutely. Father, I ask you for your love. I ask you for your comfort. I ask you for guidance and counsel. I ask you for your provision. I ask you for your direction. You betcha. Of course. Right? Of course. But here's a really helpful analogy. When my sons were young, I did just about everything for them. I picked out the socks they wore. I mean, when you got a little guy, right, you literally pick out what he's going to wear that day and you put it on him. You put his little socks on him, right? But then as he gets a little bit older, you know, he wants to do it himself and he's trying to get his socks on and you cheer that on. You're like, yeah, go buddy, right? And he gets a little older and then he's saying, I don't want to wear the blue socks. I want to wear the green ones, right? And that's a good thing. You don't want that 21-year-old asking you, dad, what color sock should I wear today? (laughs) Right? There's a maturing into this where you want him to take more and more action from all that you have taught him. Right? Like that's the really great stuff. We were out in Moab and so much richness to the story, but that's where I taught my sons to rock climb. And that's where I taught them to mountain bike. And like that's the place out in Utah has got like tons of family history for us. My sons were in this video shoot And they're young men now. And Blaine is leading these climbs I could not lead. He is way past me now as a climber. And like as a dad, I'm like, yeah, that's what you want, okay? So yes, 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 there's asking, all of that. But it's not primarily that as you move deeper into maturity in the Christian life. God says, no, you do it. Don't ask me to kick this spirit out. You kick it out. Don't ask me to heal this person. You heal this person in my name, by my power. But come on, guys, like enter into this. Practice the kingdom. Bring the kingdom. Okay? Prayer is primarily enforcing the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus say in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, right? Before he says, go and make disciples, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In other words, in my name, in my authority, I give you 
my authority to go get this stuff done. Prayer is enforcing the kingdom. It is exercising the authority that God has given us over our kingdoms, bringing the kingdom of God to bear in our kingdoms. Another way of looking at it is prayer is partnering with God to get things done. Okay? It's not asking, pleading, moving a God who finally just gets tired of hearing your voice and says, okay, okay, all right, I'll grant this prayer. Right? That's just a heinous view of any father. Right? Prayer is partnering with God to get things done. Okay? So as you're agreeing with God, as you're proclaiming the truths of God, yeah, you're kind of realigning your life in line with the things that he has said to be true, but you're also opening doors for him to act. You're opening doors. Your prayers, your agreement with God, your partnering with him opens doors for him to act. Right? It aligns things with his power and his provision and all that you want to see. Right? At 21, you don't want to be still be saying, could you put my socks on for me? Right? No, we grow up into the kingdom. But that's a really, 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 really popular understanding, misunderstanding of what prayer is. And the reason why that's so damaging is that when you don't get an answer... What do you make of that? I mean, you start coming to some pretty horrible conclusions about either yourself or God. Well, I guess I just don't have enough faith. Or, well, I guess God just doesn't care about my son being sick. Or, well, I don't know. I guess I'm just not doing this whole Christian thing right. Right? It's horrible. The damage of this is devastating to your life. But also, it keeps you from maturing. To hold this assumption keeps you from growing up in Christ. Right? Because you just stay at that young level of just always asking. Right? And it keeps you from praying with power and effect. With power and effect. Huge. Absolutely huge. Let me do a couple more. This is a really, 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 really big one. And really really popular. This life that we're living is primarily about securing a good life. This is so prevalent, it's devastating how prevalent this is. We have some friends who uh, have a beautiful country home on a little piece of water, woods. They have a, just a really terrific vegetable garden out back and a flower garden. Every time I go to their place in the country, I think, this guy figured it out. Right? He dialed it in. Like, he's got a very cool life. There's something in us, right? You know, you got your own version of that, but you kind of meet somebody who seems to be living well and doing good and prospering, right? Got the marriage together, got the work thing figured out, or you go, that guy. That guy, right? He's the dude. He's the one, right? That's the life. That's the life. It's so powerful because all the world believes this one. All of the world is about this all the time. Any and every single commercial you ever watch is some version of, you can get your life figured out if you do this, 
that or the other thing, you know, buy this product, do this thing, take this trip, you know, whatever. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. It says no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and the good life. Oh, man. Oh, man. This one is so hard to disentangle. This one is so hard to topple. The thing is, it's really revealed in your reaction to things like when vacations go bad. Or you've got a special birthday party or a special anniversary plan, right? And it doesn't go down well. Just notice your reaction to it. Like we really think that this life is about this life. And what is so damaging about this assumption is that when it doesn't happen, the guilt, the anger, the disheartening, I mean, we just make this assumption of, of course you'll get married. Of course you'll have children. Of course you'll have the ministry you dreamed of. Of course you'll have a nice home, good vacation, secure retirement. Of course God's going to heal you, right? And here's the problem with this one. You spend your best energies trying to secure a good life versus for the kingdom of God and its advancement in the world, okay? And you feel betrayed by God when a good life doesn't seem to come together for us. Where are your best energies being spent? I mean, it's just just like painful how absolutely, completely, utterly convinced we are on this assumption. Because then you read those passages where Paul says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And you go... Huh? Like, for most Christians, that is their retirement plan. Like, that's the exit plan. Like, fully? Our hopes aren't even set partially there. They're not. They're not. Oh, it's so devastating. When you operate on this assumption, one of the things you lose is your hope of reward. Right? Jesus talked about storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? And living so you'll have a great reward, how great your reward be in heaven, that kind of thing. How many people do you know live like that? (laughs) I mean, we just completely lose the idea of no, 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 no. Like life's about to happen and it's amazing. And like you want to invest in that. And this life here if you put your treasures in things of this earth, it destroys your heart because the fluctuation of it, it's up, down, it's in, out, it's good, now it's bad. She loves you, now she doesn't, right? All that is just, I mean, it is this horrible roller coaster of the, of the soul. A couple more that I think will be helpful to you. Maturity means we don't really struggle anymore. You know how this one's revealed? It's revealed at your own shock, either at your struggles or those of others. Right? That reveals that you hold this assumption. You know, when you 
you know, you got somebody that you know has been walking with Christ for 30 years and, you know, they get together and kind of share with you a little bit of their internal world and you go, get Zooks. Like, you are a nightmare inside. You are a disaster. Your shock at that reveals that you think this is true. That maturity means you get to a place where you really don't really struggle much anymore, right? Or it's revealed by your shock and dismay that you do still struggle with stuff, right? Like the embarrassment of it, the shame, the guilt, the, geez, Louise, I'm not over this yet, that kind of thing. It's absolutely brutal. You know, go back and reread Paul's self-description of his internal life. It's absolutely fascinating. In 2 Corinthians 11, after talking about all these things he's been through, shipwrecks and stonings and persecutions and all of that, he says, besides everything else, He says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul's admitting he's super stressed out, right? He's under this pressure of his worry and concern for the church. And then in Galatians 2, he confesses this other thing. He says, after 14 years of being out and preaching the gospel, 14 years of it, He says, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I took Titus too. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did it privately to those who seemed to be the leaders of the church for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. 14 years into it, Paul gets slammed with self-doubt and he's like, I might be wrong. This might not even be the gospel. Oh my gosh. I got to go talk to these guys. And so he goes up to Jerusalem and he lays out to them the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles to go, am I all right? Is this okay? Have I just wasted the last decade and a half of my life? Isn't that amazing? And it's also really kind of reassuring. You go, oh, okay, because like I get that. And then at the end of Ephesians 6, one of the last things he says, and this is after saying, put on the full armor of God, shut the enemy down, stand against the powers and principalities in the spiritual places, right? He gets done with all that, and he says, pray for me. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And then he asks it again. He says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Why is he asking for those prayers? If he's already doing that. Right? He's struggling with some fear. And he's not proclaiming the gospel boldly. And he says, I know I should. Pray, pray for me, would you? And he just go, wait, wait, this is maturity? Far out. I'm more mature than I thought I was. <laughs> you know? Okay, the other thing that totally dismantled this is just read the biographies of famous Christians. That'll kind of take care of it. The reason why this one's so damaging is it introduces guilt and shame. It fills our life with God with doubt, doubts about our life with God, and it sets up unrealistic expectations on us and on others. I think it sets us up for a lot of judgment, either towards us or from us. Can I just do a couple more here? Um, Because I really felt like these were from Jesus for us. Here's another one. The assumption is you can have both. You can have 
a very, very cool life with God and a very cool life. You can have both. You can have the riches of the kingdom and a life with God, and you can have a really rich life in terms of just this world. One of my favorite poets in the 1500s, George Herbert, said, to be in both worlds full is more than God was, who was hungry here. Referring to the life of Jesus, right? He says, to be in both worlds full is more than God was, who was hungry here. The problem with this belief, and man, this is pernicious. Man, this is tough. The problem with this assumption is that there's no real surrender of your life. And here's what's really hard. Here's what's really hard. We teach and we believe with all our hearts that there is an enormous amount of breakthrough available for people this side of heaven. We teach it, we preach it, we see it every day. We see it every day. I could tell you 100,000 stories at this point. Easy. In 12 years of ransomed heart, a phenomenal breakthrough. Easy. We see it at every retreat. We believe it. We believe your heart matters to God. We believe that Jesus heals the human heart and soul. We believe in restoration. We believe that you can powerfully defeat the attacks of the enemy, that you can get free of all kinds of stuff. We believe that. We believe that there is an incredibly rich intimacy with Jesus. We believe in the availability of miracles. But the problem that sneaks in is that what's missing from this is there's no real sacrifice. There's no real sacrifice and there's no total surrender. You're really playing both sides. You want all the riches of a life with God and you want a really cool life. Paul talks about the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ for whose sake I have lost everything. Where's the sacrifice in that model? Where are the painful choices? Where's the reward in heaven for the painful choices made here on this earth? Right? Remember the reward of your choice to love that really, really difficult spouse or family member or friend or your choices for internal integrity when you could have, you know, fudged on your taxes, made that little thing happen at work that would have brought you in a couple more grand. I mean, just where's the reward for any of that stuff? If you get both, right? You can have both. You can have a phenomenal walk with God and experience all the treasures of that. And you can have a phenomenal life. Really, really, really difficult. And the last one that I'll say then that goes with this one, and this too is pretty popular, pretty popular. Everything going smoothly means you have found the sweet spot with God. You think it's available. You do. Every single time you meet somebody who seems to found it, you want to go, who are you reading? Where do you go to church? What do you pray like? You want to know the secret. Come on. This is in us. This is in us. We believe this. We believe this because notice people's reaction when you tell them things aren't going well. They kind of go, 
Really? Ah, kind of the raised eyebrow? Wow. Right? As if that's like surprising or news or odd or bizarre or proof of your immaturity or proof that you're not praying well or proof that you haven't found the secret things of the Spirit or whatever it is, right? You haven't snuck into that sweet, sweet place with Jesus where everything is good. Everything is good, okay? The difficult thing is, is that because we believe in incredible breakthrough, because we believe the heart matters, because we believe in restoration, what sneaks in is the idea that you're supposed to have a richer and richer life. More restoration, more wholeness, right? And yet you get these verses like Peter, 1 Peter 4, where he says, arm yourself for suffering. You get Jesus in John 16 saying, in this world, you will have trouble. You will, I guarantee it. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Or you get in First Peter 4 where Peter says, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, right? This idea that everything going smoothly means you finally found that sweet spot with God. You're walking well, right? You're praying well, you're powerfully living, restoration's taking place. And then you get Revelation 1 and you read the letter to the churches. Man, those people are struggling big time. They're getting hammered. And John begins Revelation by saying, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He does not say, I, John, your brother and companion in that sweet, sweet spot with God. He doesn't say it. In the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Because the damage this one does, what this will do to your belief about God, your life with him, yourself, guilt, confusion, deep confusion, the striving that this introduces. Got to find the sweet spot. Got to find the right church. Got to find the right prophetic speaker. Got to worship more. There's got to be some place where all goes well. It's hell. It's hell to chase that. Constantly comparing your life to those who seem to have it figured out. Comparing your life to theirs. It's horrible. All of these assumptions are pretty sneaky, actually. They don't just come shouting their way into our life. They just kind of wiggle their way in. But they end up doing a lot of damage. After Easter and the 40 days that Jesus spent with the disciples, they began to change their assumptions. They began to change their assumptions about how God works in the world and what prayer looks like what this life was about, what storing up riches in the kingdom was, they began to change their assumptions. And here's the good news. They actually became an extraordinarily happy and effective group of people. I mean, they were free. Not free always from pain, not free always from suffering, but I mean, it changed their life to let go of one set of assumptions and come into some that that just align themselves more with what's true now and what's coming. Huge. So maybe a good place to go 
might be a great time to go, okay, Jesus, like, okay, show me. Like, I'm yours, I'm here. What are the assumptions that I'm not even aware I'm making that are hurting me and hurting my life with you, causing a lot of confusion and doubt? Help me here. Show me the assumptions that I'm making. And we just almost need to say it so that we're reminded of it. There there is no other life. There is no other life. There's no other source of life. Come and speak to us about the assumptions we're making. You've been listening to John Eldridge in the Ransomed Heart Podcast. If this has piqued your curiosity for more, the good news is there's so much more. More content and resources on freedom, on living from the heart, on walking with God. Visit us at ransomedheart.com.